Let's take our Bibles and uh, would you join me once again this morning in the fourth chapter of the Gospel of John, John chapter number four. Uh, Today wraps kind of the formal uh, conclusion to our Who's You One (coughs) emphasis at Hillcrest. Big rally day uh, today and some of you have already been to the 815 uh, rally over in the Northwest Hall during Connect Group Hour. The place is packed up, jammed up with people. All of our Connect Groups are meeting together today in their normal time in the Northwest Hall. And then uh, some of y'all will be going there uh, for 11 o'clock. And if you don't know what in the world that's all about, go on over there and join them. Because everybody will be together today. In one big room, we'll be hearing testimonies, learning a little bit more about Three Circles, which I'll be talking about here in just a minute or two. Uh, Who's Your One Emphasis has been very important and will be going forward as we remind ourselves in these important days of emphasizing the importance of discipleship, that evangelism cannot be divorced from a disciple's life. Uh, Oftentimes we'll draw a line and we'll separate discipleship on the one hand and evangelism on the other. They're two sides of the same coin. And God raises up disciples for the purpose of outreach. We are saved to serve in the mission field. And by mission field, that can be your neighborhood, your place of business. It doesn't have to be some foreign country somewhere. Every one of us who knows Jesus as Lord and Savior is a missionary. I am a missionary. In fact, why don't we just say that together? Together, I am a missionary. That's right. Wherever you are, we're all called uh, to the great commission to go and make disciples of all nations. You will be, Jesus said, my witnesses in Jerusalem, our own hometown, Judea, Samaria, our immediate region, and to the uttermost part of the world, the ends of the earth, as it's sometimes proverbially called, wherever we may be, we are sent by God with a mission. Jesus said it, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And you know who you means in the Greek New Testament? It means you. That's what it means. Important and deep Greek lesson this morning. God sends all of us to make a difference in our families, in our communities, in our places of business, our neighborhoods, wherever we may go. I hope you've had a chance to identify and target who that one is that you're starting the year praying for, identifying them by name, asking God to open up a window of opportunity, an open door of ministry and connection that you might at some point, uh, not only pray for them and love them, but some point share the gospel uh, with them. We've asked all of our people, whether they be a disciple who's five years old or a disciple who's 95 years old, to begin the year thinking of one, one lost person that you know that needs to go to know Jesus before it's everlasting too late. Eternity is on the line. And then once you have identified that person, write their name on one of the sticky notes in the back. Put their name up on the board. That board's going to be there for a while. And uh, that's a communicative device to everybody that walks in our facility. We are praying for a whole covey of people in our community and uh, uh, in our neighborhoods and around our world of people that we know that we love too much to just let them go their own way. We want them to know that Jesus who has changed our life. Don't you want your friends and neighbors and all that you know to know the Christ who's made such a difference in your life? Boy, I do too. So you think about that one. If you haven't done it already, identify them. First names only, please, and then stick those up on the board, and we'll have a beautiful, beautiful picture 
of the people that are on our hearts and on our minds in these important days. Well, thus far, as we've just kind of emphasized uh, some important biblical things along the way to start our year over the last four weeks, we have begun our journey by looking at the importance of being clear uh, about the gospel, our understanding of what the gospel is and what the gospel is not. You won't ever be able to effectively share the gospel if you're lacking in your understanding of the gospel. So we began this journey talking about the importance of being able to identify what the gospel is in a clear and concise kind of way. And then we transitioned on the second Sunday to talk about how to transition our everyday conversations into gospel conversations. And we looked at Jesus' encounter with that woman at the well. Jesus models so well for us what he calls us to do in taking uh, an everyday conversation about a common thing like water and transitioning it to a gospel conversation a conversation that carries eternal consequences by talking to the woman about a more pressing need even than drinking water, which of course is the living water that only Jesus Christ can give. That living water is the gospel that's wrapped up in the person of Jesus Christ himself. And she needed to know him in order to find real and lasting life. And then last week we looked at a popular parable that Jesus told about a great banquet as we examine the importance of drawing the net, making sure that those gospel conversations somehow in the right way in the right time result in an invitation, something bound up like you see all over the New Testament in the word come, where Jesus bids people all the time to come to him, find life, come to him and find rest. And we want to make sure that we not just share the gospel to give people A historical theological understanding of what the gospel is, as important as that is, but you don't want to help them to understand what it is historically and theologically and then just leave them there. You want to invite them to do something with it, namely to place their hope and trust in the person who is the gospel, which is Jesus Christ, who alone paid the penalty for our sins that we might be forgiven and find everlasting life with God. Now, through the years, when it comes to how we communicate that, those of us who have been around the block uh, for a little bit uh, remember through the years that there have been a number of evangelistic tools and outreach methods that have uh, made their way into church life over the last many years. First, there was the tract era. How many of you know about gospel tracts, right? And uh, certainly, many people still use tracks today, and they were at one time kind of the sole means of sharing uh, our faith when they became popular decades and decades ago, and they still can be useful today. I've seen some of them uh, that are not so useful. Uh, Some of them will scare the daylights out of you, if you know what I mean. Uh, But then some of them are actually very, very helpful, and uh, we still keep supplies of them here for people who want to take them and, and use them. And uh, this was the kind of the really first big evangelistic tool in the toolbox, so to speak. Then there was the bus ministry era. Anybody here ever been in a church that had a bus ministry? Yeah, very, very few churches do that anymore. First of all, because it costs a billion dollars a year to service them and buy them and maintain them. But also there are liability concerns uh, all over the place with respect to that. That was invented by a big church in Indiana many, many years ago. Our church in Nashville that Judy and I 
attended when we were newly married had a big bus ministry. Those guys would man that. You'd have to have a big volunteer force. These were people that would give up just about every Saturday, which is hard to find people to do that anymore. And they would hit the neighborhoods on Saturday, work the neighborhoods, and then run those buses on Sunday morning, picking the children up to bring them to church. And you'd have a wash of kids presented the gospel week in and, and week out. That's not done too much anymore, but certainly it is done in some places even still today. Then there was the evangelistic program era where you had these big evangelistic training programs like Evangelism Explosion that I know we did at Hillcrest years ago. CWT was a big Southern Baptist emphasis that was also done years ago. And you'd go through the training and you'd memorize this long script, right? And you'd commit it to memory and you had to give it to someone in order to get certified. And that's what you would do in these programs. You'd get certified. I know because I got certified many, many moons ago. And then as you went out adhering to the script, you just prayed that nobody throw you a curveball because if they ever threw you a curveball and got you off script, it took a miracle for you to remember where you were supposed to be in the, I'm, I'm hearing a lot of laughing. I know people have been there with me. Say amen. So you got to be careful about the script. You just want to know the gospel and a few simple tools with respect to how to effectively share it. Now, we've been teaching three circles here at Hillcrest for the last little bit, and it's not the only evangelistic uh, plan, but you do need to have a plan of some kind. There's a bunch of them out there. This is a good one, and if you've been in Connect Group, you've been learning this <clears throat> and doing this and even practicing this over the last several weeks, and it goes something like this, and you can begin in one of several ways. I do it a little bit differently in that when we're talking with people, a lot of times, if they're lost, they'll engage a conversation with you, and something will come up about something that's wrong in their life. I mean, they'll be messed up in a relationship, or they'll have a financial problems hanging over their head, or the transmission just falling out of their car, or a storm blew the roof off. You all know what I'm talking about? And so that's a good place, really, to begin by talking about the prevalence of brokenness in the world. Because everybody understands that the world is a broken place. We live in a broken world, a fallen world. And even if you're not dealing with that personally, you're surely aware of it because there are wars and rumors of wars all over the planet, right? People deal with financial hardship, losses of jobs, there are storms, there are all kinds of natural disasters that take place. And so we understand that we live in a world that's not perfect. This world is anything but heaven. It is broken and people are broken. But that's not the way God designed the world to begin. In fact, when we read the Bible, we can understand very clearly that there is a divine design. God does have a design that he, in which he created the world at the very beginning of time. In the beginning, the Bible says, right out of the gate, God created the heavens and the earth. And God created man. Different from everything else that was created. Created in the image of God. He created them, the Bible says. Male and female, he created them. And he placed them there in this perfect, pristine environment that the Bible calls the garden. And there they had perfect, uninterrupted fellowship. There was no brokenness. There was no terror. There was no fear. There was no pain. Doesn't a place like that appeal to you all? Well, that's the way God designed life. 
His perfect design stands in great contrast to the reality of the world that we actually live in today, doesn't it? And there's a reason for that. And the reason that we've gone from God's flawless design to a world of brokenness, in a word, is because of sin. Sin is just willful transgression against God. It's violating God's perfect plan. It's acting independently of God's very best for your life and putting yourself on the throne rather than God on the throne. And there in that perfect environment, the first couple committed the first sin and it instantly broke their fellowship with God and not only did it break them and their fellowship with God, the Bible teaches it broke the whole world. And the end result of that is obvious. Brokenness takes all kinds of forms. There's brokenness with respect uh, to the world, storms, volcanoes, earthquakes. There is brokenness with respect to human relationships. It's why it's so often hard to get along with people. And it's why it's so often difficult for us to control our temper and why we tend to lose our cool much of the time. Brokenness takes its form and takes its shape in all kinds of ways, ultimately and fundamentally, with this concept called death. Because of sin, we all die. And in this broken condition... We can never fully arrive at God's very best for our life. We live in purposelessness, without meaning, and without hope in the world. But the Bible teaches us that God loves us so much that he doesn't want to leave us in that broken state. We're the ones who have sinned. We deserve to be judged by God and to be cast away from God's presence for all of eternity. And yet the Bible says God is a God of love who wants to restore everything that was broken. And the way, of course, that he has done that is by giving us what the Scriptures call the gospel. And the gospel is just a word that means good news. It's it's good news that God has done something for us in our broken condition that we're incapable of doing uh, for ourselves or fixing on our own designs. Now, we often try to do that. We often can recognize that God is. And there are many people living in brokenness that do believe in the presence of God and the creative power of God. But they often try wrong ways to get into a relationship with God. Things like religion, uh, religious expression. Or sometimes they try to find it in irreligious ways, like in money or pleasure or seeking things that they think will make them happy. But all of those are wrong ways to try to get back into a right relationship with God. Instead, salvation is not about us building a bridge to God. It's about God building a bridge to us. And he's done that through the gospel. And the gospel, of course, is simply Jesus. God's work to redeem a broken world and broken people by giving his one and only son, to die on the cross. The Bible says Jesus was God in human form coming to do a work of redemption for us. And we see that in the celebration of Christmas, which is Jesus coming to our level to connect with us. And then that journey to earth resulted ultimately in Jesus' death in our place on the cross. And then after he was dead three days, the Bible teaches that Jesus rose again from the dead and is alive today. And all that is required for us to have our relationship with God restored is to turn from our sin, to recognize the gospel, 
to repent or turn away from our sin that has led to brokenness uh, and, uh, and by faith believe. You believe not in yourself, but in what God has done in the gospel of Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And then once you have trusted Jesus for who he claimed to be as Savior and Lord, at that point, God saves you. He brings you into his family forever. You become a child of God. And then you begin a process of growth and recovery. Doesn't happen all at once. You don't uh, arrive at a perfect place all in a nanosecond. You're right with God for all of eternity. But you begin a journey with God this side of heaven. You're assured of heaven when you die. But until then, you begin a lifelong process of growing in understanding of who God is and what God is about and why you're here in this life and how God wants you to live in such a way that you bring him honor and glory. And now you are living in God's perfect design for your life and you're now equipped to go back into a world of brokenness and make a difference in the lives of others. And then the way that you kind of wrap this up when you're talking with people is everybody's in one of two places. Either you're living here in God's divine design for your life or you're living here in a world of brokenness. As you look at this, uh, as you look at this design, where would you place your life? And this is basically how to have a quick, simple, gospel conversation with people. That's easy to understand, easy to memorize, and certainly it's not complicated at all to share. And once you get this on the table, I just took a couple, three, four minutes to do it. You could actually have a conversation with people for about two hours over that thing. And sometimes it may take that long. Sometimes it may be a conversation starter uh, that leads you on a further dialogue with that person that may take some time. Sometimes they may be ready to receive Jesus Christ right out of the gate. But when you hear us talking about three circles, it's just a simple evangelistic plan by which you yourself understand the simplicity of the gospel and are then able to communicate it with others. Now, with all that in mind, uh, let's see if we can't let Scripture motivate us a little bit this morning to take a plan like this or whatever plan that you've been using for a long time that brings fruit for the glory of God. I don't care what the plan is. I just want you to have one. Amen. And then I want us to be able to be ready and intentional in terms of using it. The main thing is for us not to get a person saved, and that's kind of a relief. God doesn't call us to get a person saved. God calls us to scatter the seed and share the gospel. That's where the obedience comes in. Am I obeying God? and be quick to share the gospel with the people that I know and come in contact with. And that's how you see Jesus operating as he comes across this woman and a Samaritan woman at a well. Uh, he's sensitive <clears throat> to the leading of the Holy Spirit in his life. Takes that unorthodox route through the region of Samaria, which most Jews didn't take. And he was quick to break down barriers, if you'll remember, building a bridge to that woman, engaging her. And then giving her an opportunity to respond as he transitions from everyday life to eternity in terms of his conversation. Now today I want us to just look at the dialogue that takes place in the little paragraph right in the heart of John chapter 4 between Jesus and his disciples. 
Now, they're not around when he's having that conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well. They've gone to buy groceries. Amen. Good Baptist disciples taking care of lunch and dinner. And so they're gone. When they come back, they're surprised to see Jesus talking to the woman, and he didn't know because that wasn't done. And then Jesus, when she goes back to her village, leaving that water jar of an old life behind, going to the village to tell others what had just happened, Jesus carries on a discussion with his disciples about fields that are ripe and ready to be harvested. Take a look with me at John 4, beginning in verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anybody brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are what? White for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages, gathering fruit for eternal life. So that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you've entered into their labor. Now notice with me this morning three very important things about the critical harvest that I think are worth noting. First is that the harvest is spiritual in nature. It is indeed a spiritual harvest. We're not talking so much about a harvest of crops. We're talking about a harvest of souls. Jesus often spoke in agricultural terms. Many of the parables that he tells are parables taken from the realm of agriculture. And he does that uh, not to teach them agribusiness, but he does that to make a spiritual point. In fact, the first parable Jesus ever told, the first parable of any consequence, of any length, is a parable about a sower who went out to sow seed. Y'all remember that? The sower went out to sow. And that sower is to be representative of all of us. That's what our calling is, to go and sow the seed of the gospel. He told another parable about wheat and weeds, right? Or wheat and tares as the King James Version. I haven't used the word tear like ever in my life outside the Bible, but a tear is a weed. And so we know that weeds can grow up alongside good fruit producing crops. And so it's just an example that Jesus used at agricultural metaphor all the time. And here Jesus takes advantage of the woman's uh, spiritual conversion to teach his disciples some much-needed truth about the ready spiritual harvest that's out there in the world before them. The disciples, of course, had missed that conversation, and they come back and urge Jesus to eat something, and they were concerned about him. They'd been traveling, hadn't had anything to eat since breakfast, presumably, if they had breakfast. And Jesus' response to them, I think, probably surprised them when he looks at them, semi-refuses the food and says to them pointedly, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And immediately, just like the Samaritan woman before them who thought Jesus was talking about real water, they think Jesus is talking about literal food. 
So they're interpreting everything he says physically rather than spiritually. They thought, well, somebody must have brought him some food while we were gone. Happens a number of times in John's gospel. Nicodemus was trying to interpret the new birth by figuring out how he's going to get as an old man back into mama's womb again. Samaritan woman didn't understand the water conversation. Same thing happens here with the disciples. But Jesus is talking in spiritual terms, not literal terms. Notice verse 34. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him, God the Father, who sent me. Sent me. Circle the word sent, if you would. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That word sent is indeed the key word. Jesus was sent by the Father on a mission of salvation. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. And it's that food that kept Jesus energized for the totality of the three-year public uh, uh, ministry that God had given him. And here's the thing. Everybody still with me? Say amen. The mission of Jesus is the mission of every disciple. His mission is our mission. In a very real sense, the food that God gave him to sustain him and to energize him is to be our food as well. As the Father has sent me, Jesus said, so I am sending you. So often when we talk about food in a spiritual sense, we're talking about this kind of food. We're talking about the Bible, right? So we think in terms of what we take in, and that's true. Jesus is the bread of life, and we need to take him in. Uh, This word is a living word, and we need to take it in for sustenance and for nourishment. All of that is true. But Jesus says here that the food that fed his soul The food that fed his spirit was not only the spiritual food that God gave him to take in, but it was the spiritual food that God gave him to give away. And what that teaches me is that there are lots of us in the house of God who read the Bible every day and are still spiritually malnourished. Because we're not giving the gospel away. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And I think there's a truthfulness to that. Whenever believers become sluggish in their spiritual life or restless, a lot of times I'll hear people say, there's something missing in my life. I just need more of God. No, what you do is, what you need is to give more of God away. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. The times that I'm most spiritually sluggish in my life, I can usually point two or three things. One, I'm not exercising like I need to be. I'm not eating like I should be eating, and I'm not sharing my faith with near enough regularity. Those three things are almost always true in my life when there is a sluggishness because I'm not actively at work in the harvest, and there is a degree of spiritual malnutrition, not only when you're not feeding enough, but when you're not harvesting enough. So you really can't be fully fed unless you're working in the harvest. And that means engaging people 
with things that matter for eternity because it is a spiritual harvest. Secondly, we learn that the harvest is urgent in its timing, not only spiritual in its nature, but urgent in its timing. There is an urgency to the harvest. Now, the Samaritan woman understood that. She dropped that jar and hightailed it back to the village like there was a hound on her tail. She couldn't get back there to tell others what had happened fast enough. The disciples are focused on the physical. The changed Samaritan woman is focused on the spiritual, on the urgent. The Bible says here in verse 28, the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, what? What's the next word? Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were what? Coming to him. There's a book in my library downstairs by Professor John Carter of the Harvard Business School entitled A Sense of Urgency. And he's through his studies has identified urgency, this sense of urgency is a missing ingredient in almost all organizations today that have reached a certain level of success. The hungrier an organization is and the people within that organization, typically the greater the sense of urgency. The larger the organization and the more accomplished the organization, that sense of urgency is, tends to be much minimized, if not altogether gone. All the, they just kind of start to operate on autopilot. In fact, the point of the book is that the number one enemy of any organization is what? Complacency. Complacency. Which, not surprisingly, often follows a measure of success. And how sad that success actually can be the beginning of the end. Jim Collins wrote a book called How the Mighty Have Fallen. Taking a look, it's another business book, taking a look at how once great companies like Kodak are no longer even on the radar screen because they lost their edge. They became complacent. They lost that sense of urgency. And the most successful organization, the one that continued to be successful, the Walmarts of the world, so to speak, are those where leadership is constantly encouraging a sense of urgency within the organization. And can I just say, that really does need to happen in churches too. Amen. God helps whoever ever get over what it was like to be lost and lose that sense of urgency in terms of what our mission is. We get so caught up sometimes in the mechanism of doing church, church mechanics, church programs, church culture. We just, we get on autopilot. This is just what we do. We do this on Sunday at this time, and then we leave. We do this on Wednesday at this time, then we leave. And we got this occasionally on Saturday. We come, we hear, we do, we leave. And we get on autopilot so often that the reality is we might be very good at the church stuff, but little of it have a whole lot to do with the church's mission. And one thing we can never lose sight of is what we're called to do by the Lord himself. Never lose sight of the mission. Namely, that the gospel today for God's people, I mean, it's important for everybody, but our mission is not so much about us as it is about those who aren't part of us yet. That's who we're sent to. That's what the Great Commission, go and make disciples of all what? Nations. Those who aren't a part of us yet, but who must be if they're going to exist forever with God. 
in the place God has created called heaven. That's the harvest that Jesus is talking about here. And it is a ready harvest, a ready harvest. In verse 35, you see this contrast. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? That's kind of a proverb. It's in quotations in your Bible. Jesus is repeating a proverb that was commonly known in the agricultural service, uh, agricultural culture of that day. Namely, that from the end of the sowing period in Palestine to the beginning of the harvest was about a four-month period of time. You would sow, four months would pass by, and then comes the harvest. And so what that ultimately is, that little proverb, is a statement about patience. You sow, but then you have to wait because the fruit didn't produce day after tomorrow, right? There, there, there is a sense in which you have to be patient before you reap a harvest of crops. You can't rush a harvest. But notice what Jesus says next. He flips that proverb on its head spiritually. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes. Quit waiting. Quit dallying. Now is not the time for patience. Now is the time for urgency. Lift up your eyes and see that the fields are what? White. White for what? White for harvest. The spiritual harvest doesn't run along the same lines as an agricultural harvest, harvest of wheat or harvest of corn. Now, there may be times in the sharing of the gospel where we need to have some patience and where we delay or where standing still and waiting is an appropriate thing, but sometimes in the spiritual life, patience can be used as a cover for lollygagging, amen, for doing nothing uh, at all. But when it comes to reaching people, Jesus says there's this ever-urgent approach that we need to take to the harvest. John 9 and verse 4, Jesus said, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is what? While it is day, for night is coming when no one can work. Do you hear the sense of urgency that's bound up in that statement? The time is short. People are dying. People are lost. We have to be busy. We have the day now, but we don't know how much longer we're going to have it. And we must work the work of the Father who sent us while it's still day, for night is coming. And when night comes, the work is done. And for a lot of people, it'll be too late. So the fields around us, Jesus says here, uses a specific word, white. You'd think he'd use the word ripe, but he uses the more mysterious word white unto harvest. Not really sure what he meant by that. Some have said that's a rotten ripe. In other words, it should be golden when the wheat is ready to come in, but when the wheat turns white, you may have waited too late. Rotten ripe. Sorry to say that five times in a row. Rotten ripe. But others say, no, Jesus is referring to people. And some said it was at this point when that Samaritan woman was leading a gaggle of Samaritans from that village, most of them probably wearing white tunics, glimmering in the afternoon sun. And it's to those people walking in the white robes, so to speak, coming toward him to find out what all the commotion is about, Jesus turns his disciples' attention to that crowd and says, check it out, the fields are white 
unto harvest. Either way, whatever he was meaning when he uses that phrase, the point is the harvest is ready. Everybody with me say amen. The harvest is on us right now. It's ready and delay is out of the question because the issues are too pressing and the matters that we're dealing with, human lives are just simply too eternal. So we need to reap before it's too late. The harvest is urgent in its timing. And then finally, the harvest is unifying in its outcome. Unifying in its outcome. I'm just here to tell you, I think the church is never healthier than when the church is together engaged in the mission of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you, when you're filling your life with the food of the Father, which is to do the will of him who sent me, the last thing, when you're active and energetic, here's the thing, whenever there's a gossip in the church, they're probably not chasing after the mission of Jesus Christ. They got too much time on their hands. Somebody say amen. When you're doing the will of him who sent us engaged in the mission field, this ready harvest with a sense of urgency, you ain't got time to be all up in anybody else's business. There's too much work to do. And this is why when everybody catches this vision and gets in on it, we, we, got, too much to, we got too much keeping us busy than to be worried about all this extraneous stuff. It's a global harvest. And Jesus says here, there's work for every kind of believer. Verse 36, already the one who reaps is receiving wages, gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may what? Rejoice together. Circle that phrase. That's a great phrase. So that we may rejoice together, whether we're reaping or whether we're sowing the seed. And sometimes we'll sow and other times we'll reap. You may share the gospel with somebody. And you may not lead them to Jesus. You might bring them to church at some point, and PJ leads them to Jesus. Or somebody else that they work with may. So they may be the reaper. You've done the sowing, but you might not always do the reaping. You may do the reaping sometimes, but have had very little to do with the sowing. Everybody tracking with me. But the main thing is, when a lost person is born again, we all praise the Lord together. It's a unifying dynamic in the church that causes spontaneous rejoicing. Verse 37, for here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you've entered into their labor. In other words, you've reaped uh, and you didn't really do a whole lot of sowing, but you brought home the harvest that somebody else had sown. And that's just a wonderful thing. The end result is that we rejoice together. And that's why we ought not be so preoccupied about results. We ought just be preoccupied about obeying the Lord. Sowing and reaping together, being faithful. I may not see everybody that I share the gospel with come to faith, but someone else might one day lead them to the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, truth be told, we're all drawing on the labor of somebody else, truth be told. I'm drawing on the labor of Don Lastinger and Stan Pritchett and Willie Rice and Brother Freeman Williamson. I'm drawing on their labor. They, they did stuff that I never had a part in that's still resonating with incredible benefits. These disciples were building on the sowing that had been done by the prophets of the Old Testament who faithfully preached the gospel 
Jeremiah preached the gospel for 40 years. And in the work of God that bears his name, they call him the weeping prophet because there's not evidence that one person in Israel ever responded to his message of repentance. Not one. But they would. And others would build on that faithful message. And that was true even with the disciples. They were reaping, many of them were reaping the benefits that John the Baptist had sown, who was still preaching at the time of John chapter 4. As a pastor, I often have the opportunity in a big group setting of drawing the net. You've worked hard on somebody. And then that crazy pastor gives an altar call. and Somebody responds in the big church service. That's happened to me a thousand times through the years. But here's, here's what I'm saying. None of that matters in the kingdom. It doesn't matter who draws the net ultimately. What matters is that we're all obedient in scattering the seed. And that we're all consistently obedient as we scatter the seed to give people an opportunity to respond to the gospel of Christ. Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 3, 6, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Verse 8, he who plants and he who waters are one, for we are all God's fellow workers. The important thing is that we open up our eyes not get blinded by the world and recognize the harvest is ready. Let's engage our world. It's a mission that matters. And we're never stronger than when we're engaged in it together. So start a conversation. Do a kind deed. Love somebody that's mean as a snake. Love them in some way. Build relationships with people who are not like you, don't think like you, don't act like you. Transition those everyday conversations into gospel conversations and invite people at some point when the time is right, invite them to come and join you in the journey. You know why? Because Jesus is coming again. We believe he's coming very soon and never forget it. The fields are white unto harvest. This is God's word. Let all who agree say amen this morning.